I have realized that there's been a new invention in the last 15 called Starbucks. And for all you guys who drink your coffee black, I, I just wonder, have you, have you ever tried it? Uh, Starbucks has taken coffee. I remember when I was a kid, my mother would uh, have her own coffee pot. You don't need your own coffee pot anymore. You wake up in the morning, you drive, you go through a drive-thru, and they give you coffee. And they do coffee differently now. They give you, like, hazelnut coffees. They give you, like, mocha coffees. They give you it cold, frappes. They give you uh, caramel macchianos. They have all these different type of coffees now. And uh, if I drink coffee, I probably would go there and drink coffee there. But yet there's a group of people who just won't go there and drink their coffee black. It's kind of interesting. It almost reminds me of like the ATM. You guys can think way back in your mind. Um, when the ATM came out, I remember when I was a little boy, there would be people saying, I'm not getting my money from a machine. I'm going to get it from a person, right? Because <laughs> machines are evil or something. You know, and uh, maybe it's not that. Maybe it's on ban- online banking now. Anybody here refuse to get direct deposit? Yeah, yeah, I see. <laughs> yeah, or you won't pay your bills online. Once I figured out that I don't have to put a postage stamp on those things, I pay everything online now. And I'm sure somebody can get my stuff and steal my money, but it hasn't happened yet, so. Uh, the microwave. This is my favorite one because this one I experienced for a long time. My mother was, um, had a moral uh, opposition to the microwave. Uh, the microwave came out, it's a beautiful thing. It heats your food up in like 30, to, to 30 seconds to a minute. Now, we're all used to that. You know, we've all been doing this for years now. But when I was a kid, it was like the, the, the deal was this. There was the people who loved the microwave, and then there was the people who said, well, they use radiation to heat up your food. I don't even know if that's true, but that's what they would say. Does anybody know? Do they use radiation? I don't know. So radiation gets in your microwave and heats up your food. My mom was convinced that if we heated your food up in the microwave, that you'd get cancer and die. And so she refused to get a microwave for us. Is there anybody still in that camp? Anybody? (laughs) So until I was 13 years old, we would literally, uh, we would literally have to heat up our food in the oven. Now imagine doing that, like in a, in a, and it was like a little, we used pie trays, you know, those, the, the kind of uh, made out of uh, tin or whatever. We put our food in there, she'd make it, and we'd heat it up. It'd take 20 to 30 minutes to hit that, heat that stuff up until I was 13 years old and we finally got my mom to, uh, to, to get a microwave. And wouldn't you know it, 20 years later, I'm still alive. <laughs> so is my brother. <laughs> But we have these different issues in life, you know, and we have preferences, and you know, it's okay to have preferences. Preferences are not a bad thing. They're usually amoral. It's not a moral thing at all, but it gets sticky when our preference starts uh, involving evaluation of people. When preferences become prejudice, we have a problem. I remember several years ago, I had a student. um, It's funny, I just saw her last month. She was in San Francisco doing a show. Uh, She's she's an opera singer. She's 22 years old now. Just shows you how long I've been doing this. She was in sixth grade when I had her. And uh, she was a type of little girl, just a beautiful little girl. Had these little big, beautiful eyes, these glasses. She would come to church with her Bible. She'd mark up her Bible. She always, she, she had the face of somebody who would just would soak in everything. She was like the model student that you want. For every, anything we can gauge, it seemed like she had a genuine faith in Christ. And so she quickly became one of the favorite students. My wife fell in love with her. I fell in love with her. We just loved this little girl. And then we got the news one day that she's moving to um, the south. Her father got a job 
in the Bible Belt, and they're moving down there. And so it was really hard on us. Uh, we really loved her a lot. But we kept in touch through email and whatnot. Even when Meredith and I got married, uh, this girl and her mother came out to see us get married. So we kept the relationship. And I remember getting uh, a phone call one day, and it was from a crying mother. And it was from this lady who had moved her, her kids to, to, um, to Indiana. And she said, uh, you know, ever since we got here, we didn't realize what we were going to get into but when we got here, we realized there was something different about here. You see, they were a Caucasian couple who had adopted three uh, kids from Brazilian descent. Uh, Brazilian descent, but very dark-skinned. And so when they would walk around town, mom and dad are white and three kids are black, everybody would give them bad looks, like, what's going on there? There's something, there's something going on there. And she said to me, she said, you know, uh, you know, we're adults. We can handle that stuff. But my kids, that's, a, that's, that's harder to deal with your kids. But go ahead, look at me all you want. I don't care. But my kids. And so she had told me she, her daughter had gone to school, this particular student that I'm talking about. And, and these two boys were in the playground, and they were playing with each other and teasing each other. And finally one boy says to the other, you like her, speaking of the student that I'm talking about. Of course, this, uh, this boy didn't want to be pinned that way, and he was scared of the ridicule he would get. So he started saying, I would never like somebody of that skin color. Now, of course, he used every explicitive he knew to get that message across, to defray the attention off of him. But then the student I'm talking about heard it. And so she's on the phone with me, and she's crying. And uh, I'm trying to encourage her and let her know that those, that those kids are just ignorant. That they don't know. They don't know what they're saying. They don't know what they're doing. They're just scared of being teased themselves. And I explained to her, I said, you know, your worth has nothing to do with your skin color. Your worth doesn't come from anything on the exterior. Your worth comes from the fact that you were created in the image of God. Nothing on the exterior created in the image of God. See, preference is one thing, but discrimination, prejudice is another. Today we're going to continue my little series in the book of James. We're still on schedule for that 2016 release, just so you know. And uh, we're going to look into God's word and be challenged on how we evaluate people. Because that's what it says. How does your evaluation of people compare with God's? How does God hold us accountable for the way we evaluate people? We're going to look at that today. In fact, go ahead and turn your Bibles to James chapter 2. James is a small book, five chapters, is right after the book of Hebrews. Uh, if you turn in the first page of your Bible, it'll give you a little uh, page number of where it's at. Don't feel bad. I, I've been studying this all week, and I could barely find it sometimes. So it's right after the book of Hebrews and right before the book of 1 Peter. James chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, do, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, stand here or stand there, sit at the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith, to inherit the kingdom 
He promised to those who love him, but you have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are you not the ones who are, are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him whom you are being called? We'll stop there. How do you evaluate people? How do we evaluate people? What is the process that we go through in our mind when we appraise people and give them worth? It's an interesting section here. There's going to be a lot of comparison and contrast here. The rich versus the poor. Our choice versus God's choice. Our way versus God's way. And the point is simple. God's way is always right. We're off. We appraise people by a set of things, a list of things in our mind sometimes that is contrary to the way God appraises people. We evaluate people based on things that have to do with the externals instead of the internals, and God says, no, I'm not about that. That's not where I am. And we'll look at it. Verse 1 says, don't show favoritism. Literally, uh, and it's an imperative, a command, do not hold to the faith with favoritism. Isn't it interesting? Favoritism is an interesting thing. Because on one side, to give favor to someone doesn't sound too bad. It doesn't sound like a big deal. No, you give favor to somebody. But on the opposite side of that, it's almost like a two-sided coin. On one side, heads up is favoritism, tails is discrimination. On the other side, you're devaluating somebody. So we're valuing you, we're giving you more worth, but then over here, we devalue you over here. And so it's kind of a two-sided thing. You treat the rich this way, you give them favor. Sounds nice. But in doing so, you treat the poor badly. You discriminate them against, you discriminate against them. So he contrasts the rich versus the poor and how the church has treated them. Look at verse 2. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes. And a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. Literally, the poor man could be translated a beggarly man. And the word for fine clothes here is the Roman word that describes the toga of, a, of an official running for office. So a politician. So what we find is... Something was going on in the church there where the rich were being treated a certain way and the poor were relegated to kind of like the leftovers. It'd be like this. The rich come in and we sit them in the VIP section and the poor come in and we put them in the standing room only. Or worse yet, well, you can sit over here by my feet over here. That's where the servants sit. That's where the lower class sit. You can, okay, we got the left side's the lower class, the right side's the upper class. Come on in, church. Seat where you're supposed to. Now, in one sense, if you go to a ball game and you pay for VIP seats, then you expect to be treated like a VIP, right? And if you go to a ball game and you pay for the standing room only seats, you shouldn't be expecting to sit down anywhere, should you? The problem is we don't sell tickets at the church. There's nothing for sale here. Everybody comes in for free. So if I can use the example, Kobe Bryant goes throughout his life, and he probably hasn't paid for a meal in 10 years. In fact, when he hits a restaurant, they put him in the VIP section. It's good for business. The more people see Kobe Bryant in my restaurant, the more people want to come to my restaurant. If Kobe Bryant likes it, it's probably good food. It's like free advertisement. But if Kobe were ever to step foot in our church, guess what? You can sit yourself down like anyone else, and we don't have a special place for you. 
We don't reserve seats for anyone. We don't even care how much they give. Now, we put pastors in the front, but that's not because we're VIP or anything. We do that because it's a church of 1,200 people, and we want you to know how you can access us. We want to be available to you. So you look in the front row, those are the pastors of the church. But that's not a VIP thing. I think most of us would rather be out here with you guys. But we understand the need for you guys to see us. I remember when I was 19 years old, I was going to college and just started this whole calling that I thought God was leading me to. And I was going to this church, and I'll never forget the pastor. He showed an illustration about how several years prior, and it was a large church, several years prior there was a, there was a business meeting the church had. And, and basically at the business meeting they lay out the vision for the church and where they're going, what they're doing, where they're headed. And so he did that, and, um, you know, everybody's excited. The elders agreed on it. This is, we're setting it forth to the church and basically hoping for the people's approval, but it was an elder-run system, so the people already had trusted the elders with that leadership, so we're just presenting them where we're going. And he said, one guy came forward and says, you know, I've heard your vision, and I don't think you should do that. In fact, not only do I not think you should do that, you're not going to do it. Because I know I've got to be probably the biggest giver in this church. And uh, if you do this, I'm going to leave your church. So I would suggest that you go back to your elders and you guys find something else to do. But this is not the direction to go in. And the pastor is now reliving that situation for us in the congregation. And he's saying, if you don't think that that's intimidating, you got, I mean, you have to understand. But he also understood that it was God's test on him. And he says, I know that this is not the way it should be run. And so I told the guy, he said, you know what? Um, We believe in a system here where God has placed these elders here. And we've all prayed about this, and we all believe this is the direction we need to go in. And what we believe, the way it works and the way it's biblical, is you bring your money to the elders, and the elders decide the way it's dispersed. And if you have a problem with that, the way that works, then you really have a problem with the Bible in our view, and you probably should leave our church. Now, in the end, end of the story is the guy did leave, and they did lose his giving. And you're thinking, boy, how was that successful? Then he came back and says, but you don't understand that next year our church grew in numbers. Giving went up 20%. The test was on him. God is no respecter of persons, according to Acts chapter 10. Everybody is equal. No matter what's on the outside, everyone is equal. And so we go to verse 4, and we see James begins to compare how the church appraises people versus how God was appraising people. Let's go to verse 4. You, have, you, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and inherit the kingdom he's promised to those who love him? But you have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him whom you belong? He starts a series of questions, and every, every one of these questions assumes the affirmative. So every question you see, it's like a rhetorical question that assumes the, the, the affirmative every time. The answer is, of course. Have you not discriminated amongst yourselves to become judges with evil thoughts? Of course you have. 
In fact, there's a play on words here. The word for discrimination, the word for judgment is this, has the same root word. So it can be said this way. Are you not judging within yourselves, becoming for yourselves judges with evil thoughts? He's trying to make a strong point. He's saying, listen, this is not a small deal. You guys have decided to value people in certain ways. You put values on people on externals, and God is not there. And he's comparing the two of them. You're discriminating within yourselves. You're deciding within yourselves which ones have more value and worth based on external factors. Discriminating, deciding within yourselves which ones have more value and worth based on external factors. Deciding within yourselves which one, which peoples that come through the door have more value and worth based on external factors. And God doesn't do that. What does God do? Look at verse 5. Listen, dear brothers, has not God chosen the poor? And they're poor in the eyes of the world, by the way. They're not poor in God's eyes. They're rich in faith. And they will inherit the kingdom that he's promised to those who love him. God chose the poor by worldly standards to be rich in faith. God chose, God's choice has nothing to do with external factors. This is all over the book of Matthew. If you want to do a study of what God looks for, look at the book of Matthew. It's all about, I don't care what you do. I don't care what's on the outside. I don't care what list of things you think you've done right that makes you right in God's eyes. I care about the heart. I want internal, not external. It looks good out here, but what's going on inside? And that's what he's saying. You guys are evaluating people based on what they have externally. Money. Race. All external things that I want. God evaluates things based on the heart. In fact, your evaluation has caused you to choose people that God doesn't even choose. You've done the opposite. It's almost as if he's saying, don't you realize that you're going to be spending eternity with these people that you're devaluating? You're discriminating against them, and you're going to be in heaven with them. The very core of the whole issue is the question, how do we evaluate people? How do we appraise people? How do we give them worth? How do we give them value? What is the inner, the inner system that we all have in our minds? And you know, do me a favor here. Try not to go, I'm not racist. I don't discriminate. Go a little deeper than that. Think through. I mean, most of us have the ability to shut our mouths. But what are the thoughts? What are the thoughts that go through our mind? My family recently had a block party. This was about two weeks ago. My wife and I, when we moved into our, our house in Vallejo, one of the first things we said to each other is we, wanna, we wanted to meet our neighbors. This is kind of a lost thing in America today. Who knows their neighbors anymore? Don't know their names, their phone numbers, or anything. We said, we're just going to be different. We're going we're gonna to make a block party and meet all of our neighbors. And we didn't know what we were doing. We'd never, we'd never seen this done before. So we just put a flyer in everybody's mailbox, which evidently is illegal. Don't do that. <laughs> Found out afterwards. And... Uh, and, and we invited them on a Saturday, come 10 to 3, we're going to have hot dogs and, and uh, you know, sodas, and, uh, 
It was amazing how it worked. People all of a sudden, just that one little gesture of here we want to meet you, all of a sudden people are coming, I'm mowing the lawn, they're coming to talk to me, here's my name, here's my phone number, and I'm going to be there, can I bring sodas? And one guy brought his camera, took pictures of everybody, and then that night went to everybody's house and presented them with a picture. It was amazing, you know what I mean? And I remember it was 12 o'clock and nobody's there, we're thinking, is anybody going to come? And then my wife had this idea, let's turn on the, the sound system really loud. So we opened our windows, put the music blasting, and it said party, and so everybody came out. He came out, I made hot dogs, I'm meeting people. We had somebody in our life group uh, who was there, who was just there to help us. They were, you know, if I was meeting people, my wife was meeting people, the, uh, these people were cooking for us and making sure everything was taken care of and the hot dogs weren't burning so we could be a, a part of meeting people. And the whole goal was just to meet them, get to know their names. And um, who knows? I mean, we're obviously being strategic. We, want, we would love to see them come to our church one day. We'd love to see them come to know Jesus someday. Um, we got to know their backgrounds a little bit that day. You know, we just felt like, if we wait till Christmas and invite you to a Christmas play and you don't ever know my name and that's the first time I ever come to you, it might look weird. But if, I've, if we've gone out of our way to get to know you a little bit first and you know us and then we say, hey, want to come to this Christmas program? They might go, oh yeah, let's go to that. These are cool people. And so who knows how God's going to bless that. You know, we're really excited about that. We're praying about it. Hopefully we'll see in the future um, some people come out. To my shame, I have to reveal you something that I'm not proud of though. You see, I had already uh, in my mind kind of pinned everybody on my block, what they were like and who they were. I know you guys never do this, so. See, to the left, I had this hardworking family. One kid left, about to be out of high school, and uh, about to be empty nesters, but really nice people. In front of me, I had this hardworking family. Again, they are empty nesters. Um, vacation a couple times, but you know, good hardworking family, Moses' own lawn, good guy. So to, to the right, I have this quiet family. Don't, don't, don't talk to us, we won't talk to you, but we're not gonna bother anybody. I already had all this in my mind. And adjacent, I had another family. This was the questionable family. This is the family that if anything happened on our street, you might kind of think it may be them. They might be involved. <laughs> they might be involved. Um, and I made this evaluation just, ba- I never talked to them, just based on watching them, just based on how they walked, just based on who it looked like they were hanging around. And I said to myself, well, they're probably renters. <laughs> and they're not the type of people that go to a block party anyway, but we'll invite them because, you know, we love, we love everybody. But I'm having all these thoughts in my mind, but I love everybody. And so, uh, We'll invite them. They won't come. Well, guess what? They did come. And they were probably the coolest people on our street. They're the ones that we connected with the most. They're the ones closest to our life stage starting a family, hard-working people, travel miles to get to work and come home so they can own a home, by the way, not rent. And here I had them pinned. I had them figured out, didn't I? All because of what I saw. All because of the appraisal system in my mind that I thought I had it all figured out. Now again, I say, I'm sure nobody else struggles with that. I'm sure nobody else does that. Or maybe I'm just the only one who's open enough to admit it. How do we evaluate people? 
How do you evaluate people? What external items do you go through in your mind to appraise people by? I mean, think, dig deep. What are the externals where you, you make a judgment, you make an appraisal of them and how they are and who they are? Is it how much money they have? Is it their education or lack of it? Is it their power, their influence? How about an accent that they might have or the color of their skin? You know, I had a mother who came from another country who learned this language. It's not an easy thing to do that. And she could tell when people would look at her weird when she said a word wrong. Maybe it's their size, whether they're short, long, slim, or big. Automatically, things come to mind about them and who they are. Maybe it's their health or lack of it. What about a handicapped person? Maybe it's their age, young or old. Or maybe it's their style, the way they dress, the way they do their hair. Automatically, we categorize them in our mind and put them in certain categories. We evaluate who they are, what they are, what their character is. See, God's not concerned with any of this because he's too busy being concerned with their heart. He doesn't care how much money you make, how much education you have, or the lack of it. He doesn't care about your power and influence, the color of your skin, whether you have an accent or not, whether you're long, short, big, slim, whether you have health or handicapped. He doesn't care about your age or your style. He cares about your heart. What's going on in your heart? Maybe it drives you crazy when the younger generation comes to church, like me, in jeans. And I, get, I understand the reverence of church, but I get that. Please, I understand it. It's amazing to me how an issue like that can be such an eyesore to one generation, and yet to another generation, it's like a welcoming factor. You see, there's a younger generation that comes through these drawers, and they see somebody on the stage with jeans, and they go, Oh, I think I might be able to fit here. I think they get me. That's why I wear jeans. If we don't reach the next generation, we know we're one generation away from the doors being closed, right? So I wear them because I want them to feel welcome. And secondly, I wear them because I do get them, and they do get me. Guys, it's not about external things. It's not about what's on the outside. Those things are meaningless to God. Rich, poor, doesn't matter. God is concerned about the heart. And the irony is that in James's context, instead of siding with God and evaluating people the way he evaluates them, they sided with the enemy. Let's look at verse 6. But you have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? He 
Here we have the church taking the Lord's chosen and insulting them and dishonoring them. And they're doing it in three ways. Three, three, three things that they're favoring. Three things that are going on. They're, they're dishonoring the poor even though the rich are doing these three things. They're oppressing them, they're dragging them into court, and they're blaspheming the good name that they're called by. It's kind of an interesting thing. In fact, this whole court terminology, some people think that actually they were holding court at church. You remember in the, in the book of 1 Corinthians, he was telling them, you guys should judge amongst yourselves. It very well could be that they had a court system in church so they wouldn't use outside courts. And that would be even worse. So now you're coming to the court of the church, and, and when they're making judgments, they're giving favoritism to the rich. It may not be that. It may be, it may be that they're going to outside courts, but regardless, in the church, they're giving favoritism to the rich. The point is a saying, favoritism is missing the mark. Even though they're oppressing you, even though they're dragging you into courts, and even though they're blaspheming God, you're giving them favor. Now, how does that make sense? Why would you do that? The best illustration I could give you is this, and it would cause you all to go back to your junior high days. Can you remember that? Go to your junior high days and remember the class bully, right? So you got the class bully, and no matter on Wednesday, he could have been the worst thing to you, so mean to you. On Thursday, what do you do at lunchtime? You give him your Doritos. And the reason you give him your Doritos is because you're hoping what? Maybe he'll be nice to me today. Maybe that's what's going on here. But whatever the case, some commentators even believe that by giving, uh, giving favor to a blasphemer, they're blaspheming God. The rich could be the source of their trials in chapter 1, and yet they're favoring them. Whatever the case, their appraisal of people was contrary to God's appraisal of those same people. And it's a good challenge for us. How do we appraise or evaluate people? And don't we realize that one day our evaluation will be evaluated? What will God think of the way we appraise people? You know, I'm kind of applying this. I'm taking it up a notch because I just think at Valley, we do such a good job. We're, you know, we do things for the poor. I just don't know that we have a problem with loving the poor. I think we have a good, good, do a good job of that. In fact, I think we're pretty diverse. If you look around here, you see we're, we're diverse. We could, do, we could hold a conference on, on a diverse church. Believe me, there's pastors that come to our church and say, how did you guys accomplish that? How did you guys, like, become so ethnically diverse, economically diverse? So in one sense, it's easy to preach this to you guys because we're doing such a good job. Another sense is kind of like, well, how do you apply it? So, I'm kind of taking it a step up, evaluating on external factors. But what would God think of our evaluation? We're going to look to verse 8, and now James, instead of using a common sense argument, he kind of switches to a moral reasoning. And here's what he says. Look at verse 8. What would God think of our evaluation? If you really keep the royal law and found the scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking it all. 
For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. And if you commit adultery but don't commit murder, you've become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What would God think of our evaluation? Three things. Three things. First, love will never lead you to favoritism or discrimination. And here we have a compare and contrast again. God's way versus our way. The royal law or the law of love trumps the written law because it calls you to a higher motive. Are you doing this in love? And favoritism does not equal love. In fact, according to this, it means you commit sin. And it's interesting here. It, 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 the idea, it exposes you as a transgressor, a violator of the law. There's overwhelming evidence against you. It's an open and shut case. He's using harsh terminology. What he's trying to say is, listen, this is no small thing. Don't make this a small thing. This should not be tolerated in the church. The poor are those people in the low position that we saw in chapter 1. Don't discriminate against them. The poor are the ones that I said, true religion, take care of the orphans and the widows. Don't discriminate against them. The Old Testament backs this up. Leviticus 19.15 says, you shall not... You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, no defer to the great. But you are to be you are to judge your neighbor fairly. And again, I say, you know, I think we do a good job of this. One of the things I love of our church is that my daughter on a Sunday will be hugged by an Asian, by a Hispanic, by a Caucasian, by an African American. My daughter will will grow up colorblind. Because she is touched and loved by every race. I think a lot of times when we seclude ourselves and we kind of segregate ourselves, it's more of an ignorance issue than anything else. I don't know how to act around these people. I've never seen them. I've never talked to them. I don't know them. And so I feel like that's one thing I love about this place. It's like this. When I feel like a burrito, I call it Pops Roscoe. And I say, Pops, are we having burritos? When I feel like lumpia or chicken adobo, I call up Mr. Galvin. And he tells his wife to make me some lumpia. <laughs> and she comes up to me and she says, Pastor, I didn't make it with pork because you need to eat chicken or, or, or turkey. I don't care. It tastes all the same to me. When I want ribs, I call up Philip Davis, Jermaine Duckett. They'll put on the spread. There'll be some Kool-Aid around, I'm sure. Caucasian ladies, you make the best potato salad ever. <laughs> ever. And I need a Korean friend because those short ribs and white rice are so good, and I don't have a Korean friend. So if you're Korean, come talk to me. I always used to, I always used to tell the students I'm an equal opportunity eater. <laughs> I think we have a good handle at our church as far as race related. I think we do a good job. We all meet in the same building. We all worship together. The same God, and that's a beautiful thing. It is a beautiful thing. But what else does God think about this? First, love will never lead to favoritism or discrimination. Second, sin cannot be subdivided into separate classes. Sin cannot be subdivided into separate classes. Look at verse 10 again. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles just at one point is guilty of breaking of it all. 
For he who said do not commit, mur- commit adultery also said do not commit murder. And if you commit adultery but don't commit murder, you'll become a lawbreaker. What in the world is he doing there? He's trying to break the spell in them because they think this is not a big deal. You guys ever heard of a white lie? Yeah, you have? <laughs> That's cool. I remember when I was six years old, I, my mother really needed me to be able to go to the boys' club. Now it's the boys' and girls' club, but it was the boys' club back then. And you, you had to be seven years old to go to the boys' club. Well, she didn't, she couldn't, we couldn't afford daycare for me. And so she said, you're going to go in there and you're going to tell them you're seven years old. I still remember this. This is how much it scarred me. I, I, I go, and I'm six years old. Mom, isn't that lying? She goes, oh, yeah, but it's a white lie. My little six-year-old mind starts running, like, what's the difference between a white lie and a black lie? I, so if white people say it's okay? No, but we're Mexican. That doesn't work. <laughs> so I'm trying to figure out what's, what's going on. Well, maybe if you really, really wanted it, it's okay. No, that can't be it. And then I came to, if you really, really need it and you have to lie to get it, it's okay. That's the principle. And that, we do that in our lives, don't we? We do that. We go, this thing is not so bad. This one's worse. I'm going to do the not so bad thing. If I don't do the worst thing, then I'm okay. And that's what they were doing with this issue. They were favoring the rich, giving them VIP seats in the church, and thinking, oh, it's not a big deal. I'm not committing murder. I'm not committing adultery. And he was saying to them, it cannot be said of you that you observe the entire law if you break the smallest point. And he gives them an example. The same God that said don't commit murder is the same God that said don't commit adultery. If you commit adultery and don't commit murder, you still violated the law. And his point is this. It is absurd to be inconsistent in your obedience. It is absurd to be inconsistent in your obedience and think that you have observed the law. In fact, you guys are held to a higher standard. Now you got the royal law. The royal law comes in, and now we want motivation. Not only works, but motivation. Motivation comes from the heart. Is this loving or not? First, love will never lead to favoritism or discrimination. Second, sin cannot be divided into different classes. Don't minimize it. And third, finally, he will judge it. He'll be the judge. Look at verse 12. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. That's the royal law. Because judgment without mercy will be, so, will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Here it is again. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged. This is the uh, last time. Be doers, listen to the word and do it. Here he is again. Do it. In the famous words of the greatest coach in the NFL history, Mike Singletary, don't tell me, show me. <laughs> I named my fantasy football league that this year. Don't tell me, show me. And the idea is simply this. Don't you realize that if God chooses to judge you based on anything besides mercy, we're doomed? Boy, I sure hope he's merciful when he judges me. So if that's the case, why would you not give mercy out? Why wouldn't you go and give mercy? And he's speaking, you're not being merciful to the poor here. You're favoring the rich. And yet your God was merciful to you. He will judge that. In fact, it could be written this way. For merciless judgment 
will come to those who do not practice mercy. For mercy triumphs over judgment. You know, some commentators believe he's calling salvation into question here. You see how he's making this, this case? You made this a small issue, and I'm ready to call your salvation into question over it. No child of God will be able to go through life without dispensing mercy. So let's apply this. Let's go back in our minds. How do we evaluate people? What would God think of that evaluation? What is the litany test that we put people through in the grid in our mind? Maybe we don't talk about it that much, but we think, oh, that person is this. Oh, that person is that. Oh, they come from this culture or that culture. They, they dress like this, they dress like that. Again, I feel like at Valley, we do such a good job of intermixing already. And so I thought to myself, how do we apply this at Valley? This is what I came up with. You guys have already heard, we're starting something called Life Groups. Life Groups is, a, is, is our attempt to make the large church small. Um, you guys don't know this, but all of us on staff and stuff, we're kind of into this whole church thing. And we read books about it. And the stats are out right now that say, if you don't take your large church and make it small, people will leave. No matter how good the preaching is. People leave on several different factors. One, nobody knows my name. Two, if there's a crisis in my life, I wouldn't know who to go to, and I don't want to bother a pastor. So because nobody knows my name, and I don't, I don't feel like anybody would notice if I'm not here, I'm leaving. People do it all the time. There's a big back door in big churches. And so we're trying to take this large thing and make it small again to where we can get you around people who know your name. When you have a life's crisis, you can bring it to your small group, and they can pray for you. If there's a medical situation, they can bring you meals. We're trying to give you friends that are in the faith before you need them. And you'll see. It's an easy commitment. We're asking for eight weeks. And by the way, like Rich said, if you're connected already, we're not going after you. We're happy that you're connected. Stay connected. We're going after people who aren't connected. We're trying to fill that void. If you're not connected, we're asking you for eight weeks. You'll see in the next coming weeks, we've got four, three more commercials coming. We've got a little uh, uh, pamphlet thing coming out with pictures of every one of our leaders. It's as diverse as our congregation. You come, you meet together, you have a snack, you go over with the sermon, last week's sermon, we write questions, we give them to you, you talk about it, what you'll find, what we're finding, we've done this for about two years now with young adults and then we've started with uh, training adult, adult leaders. What you're going to find is the sermon will come alive to you. And the reason is because you know you're going to have to be answering questions about the sermon and so you, you tend to take notes more. You tend to listen a little bit more. You know how you know when you, you get that text and, and that text says that the 49ers just scored a touchdown and we lose you for five minutes, you know? I know you Raiders fans don't get texts. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> but what I'm saying is 
If you get that text and you're in a life, you remember, oh, I better not look at that. I got to get this down. I got, I got to listen. I got, and the sermons become more alive. Everybody who's been through it, all I can say is everybody who's been through it is like, I can't believe how much more I'm getting out of Sundays. And I got these people I can pray with and who love me. And we've had already the stories that we should do. One day we'll do testimonial videos of when life tragedy happens and how these groups are rallying together to support each other. Eight weeks of your time. It's bite-sized. We did it so it can fit in your schedule. So what's the challenge? The first challenge is to sign up. The second challenge is if you don't know anybody and you see these pictures of people and you don't know anybody and you don't know anybody getting in a group, then the challenge would be cross over. See, because as we go to church together, but how many of us intermix in our actual relationships? And I won't look at you, but how many friends do you have of other cultures, ethnicities? Do you have them? So, and this is just a challenge for you. Well, I don't know anybody. Well, I'm going to go. I see the picture. I'm going to go. I, you know what? I'm just telling you right now. We, we've done this already for about two years. And the first one we did, we had a couple who, um, uh, husband's American, and the, the spouse was, African, uh, was South African. And the questions would come about, uh, how did you grow up? I cannot tell you how we were enriched to hear her stories of how, to grow up, how she grew up in South Africa. It was amazing. All of us were like, this is unbelievable. I was enriched by it. You will be too. Try it. Eight weeks. Get involved. You know, I'll never forget, uh, Pastor Phil used this illustration when I was 15 years old. I have all these recollections of Pastor Phil's sermon when I was a kid. And it was the story of two taxidermists. So, uh, both these guys get together and they compare their work, you know. And the first guy says to the second guy, he goes, oh, that owl there, that's a, that, yeah, you know, you could have done a better job on that. I mean, the wings and the, the feathers and you've kind of got its head turned in an unnatural position. I, I don't know that you'd ever see it in the wild that way. I mean, you could have gone for more of a natural, picturesque kind of a, you could have made it better. And the second guy goes to the first guy, he goes, what the hell are you talking about? He goes, that one right there. They both look up, and it moves. Isn't it amazing how we can be so confident in our evaluations and in our appraisals, and yet completely miss out on reality? How do you evaluate people? How do you appraise people? What would God think of that evaluation? General Robert E. Lee was a devout follower of Jesus Christ. It is said that soon after the end of the American Civil War, he visited a church in Washington, D.C. And during the communion service, he knelt beside a black man. An onlooker said to him later, how could you do that? And Lee replied, my friend, all ground is level beneath the cross. All ground is level beneath the cross. How do you evaluate people? How do you appraise their worth? What would God think of that evaluation?